When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, spirituality, the Bible, theology, relationships. And I answered them with stories from the Christian tradition and from my own knowledge and understanding. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the questions of the day and attempt to answer them as best I can from what I know and what I've learned along the way. Today, the question is, what are the creeds? What are the creeds? And I'm not talking about the band, per se, with arms wide open. We will look at the subject. I want to thank Jim Cochran for that joke on creed, because I couldn't remember any of their songs. The creeds are found on numerous pages of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the book that we use for worship. And also, you, you may have heard them in uh, various settings. Uh, and in music and classical music, and probably in some films too. I'm trying to think of a good example of a film that has the creed in it, but um, there's, that'll probably pop into my head later in the episode. But this is a, a class that we're doing today at St. Joan of Arc Episcopal Church in Pflugerville at West Pecan, the best coffee shop in the entire Austin region, maybe all of Texas and probably in the nation. Uh, West Pecan has like hosted us for just about everything our little church start has done and have been so gracious and kind as we have hogged the table, the best table, often on a Sunday morning for class <clears throat> and other times as well. We pray morning prayer there twice a week and in other different coffee shops as well, which is pretty cool. But uh, this idea of what are the creeds, we say the creeds in the Episcopal tradition just about every day. Every day for morning prayer, evening prayer, one or the other, we say the Apostles' Creed, which is pretty short. And every Sunday we say the Nicene Creed or Nicene Creed. The word creed comes from the, uh, the Latin credo, I believe. And most of the creeds start with I believe. And in modern translations, they often start with, we believe, because we're usually saying them in a group. Uh, that, that sort of speaks to the individualism and collectivism that, that uh, is, is uh, happening in our culture today. I think the modern translations of we believe is an attempt to correct the individualism of, of our day. Whereas before, to say I believe with a group of people wasn't an individualistic statement, but now it kind of is. We want to say that this is something the church all over the place believes. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are, as our prayer book says, statements of our basic beliefs about God. Now, basic here doesn't mean uh, in the modern internet slang of basic. You know, me here with my pumpkin spice latte, sipping it with my Ugg boots and sweater and one of those hats. Of course, I wear pretty much all those things, and I'm pretty basic. Being basic now is sort of just enjoying life. And those of us who are cynical and have seen it all can look at those folks and say, you're basic. But in fact, maybe they're just enjoying life. If you take um, that Voltaire quote in his Candide, where 
Candide meets the, the wisest philosopher in the world. I believe his name is Pangloss. And, and Candide is a simpleton, and he says, he must be such a wise man, for nothing pleases him. And I often think of myself in that light, that so much of my wisdom is simply being a gadfly, poking at uh, other people's cherished beliefs. And that kind of cynicism uh, is, is not um, always so good for human flourishing, especially my own. I don't know if you've ever faced that, but I certainly have. Human flourishing is often uh, comes from enjoying the little things in life, the little moments that we have with each other, the little moments we have with even with people that frustrate us, to be able to see that light in them and is often a, a path to see the light in all of us that God has given us. So the creeds are statements of basic beliefs about God. Uh, God is one of those words that is probably uh, like the word love used in so many different contexts that the word itself is pretty much meaningless. Uh, when someone says the word God, it's really hard to know what they mean. Now, we don't want to push that uh, discussion too far of what people mean when they say something. Um, certainly lots of philosophy and theology has been done on on how we mean something, but the creeds are designed to make a very simple statement, a very simple positive statement about what we do believe as Christians, and so that we can have something to hold on to in difficult times, in tough times, in times where it seems like the world is crashing down upon us. There is a scene that I'm thinking of from the news in a bombing of a Coptic uh, church in Egypt where those that went to to mourn the dead gathered around the church after the bombing, those Christians there, and they sang the creed. They sang the creed. It's a song they sing every Sunday, and they sang it. Um, and to me, that is one of those places where I see the creed really carrying the weight of human suffering in a way that very few other things can. It's about, supposed to be a basic statement of belief about God. Uh, believe it or not, Episcopalians, which I am one of them, believe stuff. We actually do believe stuff. Uh, I've often heard in church contexts uh, that we don't believe stuff. Oh, Episcopalian, you can believe whatever you want. Uh, we don't believe anything. We, we have no beliefs. And maybe I've said, said some of this kind of stuff to try to win people over, try to get them to consider coming to the Episcopal Church. And I think what people mean by that is that we're not going to in the Episcopal Church argue and kick you out if you don't believe the same thing we believe about the second coming or the rapture. Um, many of us have come from churches in evangelicalism and fundamentalism where believing something like believing in this rapture, which is a, an event at the end of the world where Christians are miraculously shot up into space, into heaven, and are left and their friends are left here on earth and families wondering where they went and then there's seven years of tribulation and there's the second coming and the belief in this the secret rapture um, became a really entrenched view in american evangelicalism in the 20th century and became a test for orthodoxy or became a test for true belief in a lot of churches so denying that 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 secret rapture or whatever it's called 
uh, would often get people kicked out of churches. So when we say the Episcopal Church doesn't believe anything, I think people often mean that we don't believe these esoteric, we don't, we're not going to kick somebody out for an esoteric or very um, niche belief about the end of the world or something. Uh, and in fact, we're probably not going to kick people out for having questions about the creed, about what we believe. Um, I often think if you don't believe any of this stuff in the creed, say it anyway and see where it takes you. And I think we do have many people in, in our churches um, who understand the creed that way, that I'm saying it with my fellow siblings in Christ, even though I have trouble believing in a virgin birth, a miraculous, spontaneous birth by the Holy Spirit in a woman's body in the first century. Uh, maybe I have a hard time believing in that, the way the church has taught me that that's true, but I'm going to say the creed with my brothers and sisters anyway. And that may be how some people understand the creeds, and that's certainly I've met people in the Episcopal Church and others in other churches who that's how they say the creeds. But but this is stuff we believe um, at our core. These are our core beliefs. Uh, churches don't need to come up with a whole lot of fancy uh, vision, values, mission, and all those kinds of things. Now, they, it's good to do those things to kind of hone in on the local area where we are. But here's our core values. Here's our core beliefs right here in the creeds. Uh, the, the, there's two creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that's used regularly in worship. And the, the Apostles' Creed is an ancient creed of baptism. It's always been associated with baptism, often called the ancient Roman symbol. It shows up in early church fathers' works uh, pretty early on, but we don't have like a full text of an actual creed till a couple hundred years after Jesus is resurrected and crucified. But the outline of faith that someone would have said at baptism is pretty much what you find in the Apostles' Creed. You'll find a very clear statement of who God is, who Jesus is, and then um, the Holy Spirit. But again, it's not a heavily Trinitarian creed as much as the um, Nicene Creed is, but it is very, very uh, Trinitarian. One of the ways to look at creeds is that they are responses to what we now call heresy. Um, heresy uh, is a word that means to be outside the the beliefs of the church. The early heretics were not heretics until a church council got together and said, yeah, that's kind of outside the boundaries of what we can believe. And then people had a chance to kind of get on board. And if they didn't, they would be considered heretics and outside the beliefs of the church. Sorry for flipping pages here, but uh, the Apostles' Creed you can is recreated and sort of broken up in our baptismal liturgy where we baptize somebody. And as as a per, before a person's baptized, whether a grown-up or a baby, the godparents speak for them, and they affirm the tenets of faith in the, in the Apostles' Creed. And it starts with God. You know, God, as I said, is a very misunderstood and confusing word in our culture. Um, God can be that great big muffin in the sky that everybody gets to take a bite out of and just is up there, just a quivering mass of availability of sugary muffin. You can just take a little nibble anytime you want, and that's what God is. Or God could be a patriarchal storm 
stormy Zeus-like figure with a long gray beard who is reeking out death and judgment all the time and maybe like other patriarchal figures in your life and that's God or maybe God is the force I guess that's the muffin again you know that you see in Star Wars the force is in us among us around us there's even a virgin birth in the in the Star Wars theology and uh, so God is this force that there is a dark side to this force but um, but there is like the good side of the force too and and that's God as this force. So people mean all kinds of different things when we talk when they say with God. But we as Christians believe that God is the Father Almighty. These are all statements from Holy Scripture. That's where the creed came from. It came from uh, early Christians reading the Bible and saying, "Yeah, here's a pretty definitive statement that we can cross-reference in a couple places that the authors of the Bible believed these things about God." God, the Father Almighty. Uh, father language is particularly um, troubling these days. Talking about God as Father um, often conjures up that patriarchal image of the gray bearded man in the sky and often also genders God in a way that may also be troublesome for many today who have come to understand the, a fuller view of God. In Genesis, it says that uh, God made man and woman in God's image. In the image of God, God made them. Male and female, he created them. So the image of God is both male and female in the book of Genesis, the very first book and description of who God is in the Bible. It says that God is both, contains both male and female, or the image of God is both masculine and feminine, and everything in between. That God is not just a man. God is not a boy. God is not an old man, a young man, exclusively. But to, to, to refer to God as Father is the way Jesus prayed to God. It's the way Jesus uh, taught us about the Father in heaven. And I think for many of, of us, there's certainly great theological works to read on this. But as we think about our own lives and our own complicated relationships with our fathers, and, and our, as fathers which I am one of three boys, the complicated relationship that we have with our children, um, which is both loving and also uh, often can, can, can turn into, um, out of that love or out of that desire for control, attempts to control. And, and this is where father love can be particularly toxic as, when, as it attempts to control another person's life through power, often through superior, superior physical power, which um, that is the, often uh, how the patriarchy works in, in, a, in a coercion of, of other people underneath that system in the hierarchy. So God is Father. I think the way it can be a spiritually nurturing belief today is seeing that although we have certainly so many examples of imperfect fathers and absent fathers, and abusive fathers, that God is the Father that loves us and cares about us with an everlasting love, that we rest in the fatherhood of God as a way of saying, it's going to be okay, that I'm going to be protected, that I'm going to be loved unconditionally in this way. And so I think that um, coming back around to the Father 
is an important part of spiritual development. We often uh, joke, maybe amongst ourselves as amateur theologians, uh, which is the member of the Trinity that we have the most trouble with. Um, and it's easy to sort of look at the Holy Spirit that way. Well, we're Episcopalians. We don't do a lot of clapping and singing and demonstrative acts of worship, you know, if you don't count kneeling and all that. Uh, and yet I think the Father, um, for me, is um, the member of the Trinity that I have struggled with the most uh, because talking about God as Father brings up all the Father stuff that we all carry with us, and especially I carry with me. And so uh, feeling the love of the Father has been a big part of my spiritual growth and, and health, um, knowing that that God the Father loves me, and that Father energy, um, which meeting that approval by God through the Son, Jesus Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit um, has been a real gift to me. And I certainly think we can understand God as mother as well, because God is not a gendered uh, male with 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 um, male sex. God is uh, certainly beyond those binaries and all the ways that we understand God. But that father in the creed is there for a reason, and we should take note of it. Um, the father being the creator of heaven and earth. And right away you see, the, it's a very short little description in the Apostles' Creed, and then it goes right into Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It gets real detailed in the Apostles' Creed. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's only three human beings mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Maybe this is one way of understanding the Apostles' Creed. Um, you've got Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So he's a human being in this creed. Born of the Virgin Mary, of Mary. Mary is the second human mentioned in the creed. The God-bearer, the Theotokos, Someone who you will hear about in a song that is often repeated around this time of year, Mary, did you know? And yes, Mary did know. I did a rap battle about this. You can see it on YouTube. Uh, the for or against, Mary, did you know? And yet Mary did not know. Um, she pondered all these things in her heart. So Mary both did know and did not know. Um, and, the, and the song is, of course, a rhetorical question, not meant to be easily answered. You can hear the sounds of Pflugerville's large trucks going by. Um, there are several large pickup trucks in this city, and they like to drive around with loud noises. You'll hear some of those. And so uh, the, the third person mentioned is Pontius Pilate. Huh. Of all the people mentioned in the creed, there's Pontius Pilate crucified, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. I mean, all the blame of the crucifixion certainly goes to uh, numerous characters in the story, and including us as well here in this day and age. But Pontius Pilate gets the great um, line in the creed that he, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was ultimately his decision that led to his crucifixion in that, in that um, drama of that of Passion Week. And so he gets to that place in the creed. Of all the things you would want to be known for in life, uh, this is not one of them. Pontius Pilate fades into obscurity after the crucifixion. He is, uh, I believe, 
pretty well attested historical character. Um, we know him from a couple other places that he shows up in the record, a non-biblical, non-scriptural record, but then disappears. There's several theories on where he went after that, but it probably wasn't to a, a exceptionally well-respected post. It seems like the events in Judea, Jerusalem of that year, 33 or whenever it happened, 30 AD, uh, sort of ended that. But he is a character that we can see all the the all of humanity inside this inability to make a good decision he's pressured by his own wife who's having dreams and visions that this man is innocent then the the roar of the crowd crucify him crucify him the the, the attempts to wheedle his way out of it by offering them barabbas uh, all these things that pilate does to excuse himself then the ultimate act of washing his hands of saying uh, this blood is not on my hands. His blood is not on my hands, when in fact it is. And Pilate is all of us in that story. It is often um, brought up around Holy Week and other times that Christians have historically blamed the Jews for killing Jesus and then taking out our anti-Semitic vengeance, anger, and abuse on Jews in our community. And this is so against the story that we find in Holy Scripture. So against what we can just plainly read in our creeds, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate primarily, um, if we want to find someone to be angry at in the story. And yet Pilate is so much like us. Uh, he is just trying to do his job. So much evil in the world is done by people who are just trying to do their job, just trying to get home to their kids. And so the Apostles' Creed shows, tells us what we do believe from Holy Scripture. The one line that always comes up in discussions of the Apostles' Creed is, he descended to the dead, or he descended to Hades, or he descended to hell. Um, and this is attested to in Holy Scripture in the New Testament, that Jesus descended down and led captivity captive, I think is in Ephesians. There's also... Uh, in the book of Jude and, and Second Peter, or First Peter, I'm mixing up my Peter references, uh, where Jesus uh, preaches to the spirits in prison. So there's references to this liberation quest of Jesus, that he goes down into hell and frees the souls that are there waiting for him. This is Hades, the abode of the dead. So both the righteous and the unrighteous are there, and he goes down and frees the righteous, and maybe even some others as well. There's lots of great paintings about the harrowing of hell, as it is called. If you need a good band name, that's a good one. Har the harrowing of hell. It'd be kind of cool to even name a church after that someday. Hmm. I think I'll work on the one I've already got right here, but um, maybe someday in the future. The harrowing of hell, Episcopal Church. Ah, we'll see how that, how that, how the marketing focus groups feel about that one. Uh, and then the, those final lines of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, woe, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. The communion of saints, this is All Saints Sunday observed. So thinking of ourselves as part of the communion of saints is a huge uh, reassurance that we are not alone in this life, that we have a whole cloud of witnesses. And this is all written in, in, the, in the Bible, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. 
And so we maybe we ought to get to know some of them. Um, certainly those that are mentioned in Holy Scripture and those that have existed all the way down through the ages and into our own present age. So, and then the other line, the forgiveness of sins. This is something we believe. It's related to the clause in, in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But it's also this idea of the forgiveness of sins. This is, if you meditate on this for any length of time, that sins can be forgiven, the things done and left undone. This is where our teachings on moral injury come into play, that there is forgiveness. It's not self-forgiveness. It doesn't just come internally from us uh, sort of reframing all of our actions, but it comes externally from God from the, through the Holy Spirit into our lives. It flows into us gradually through the Holy Communion that we take every week, and it flows to us in the love that we have and find in one another. Uh, this is a core tenet of the Christian faith, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's hard to believe that in this day. Um, we want people to disappear that have sinned, and we never see them again, or we want and we have the ability in the modern world to kind of do that in many ways. But uh, believing in the forgiveness of sins, even for people uh, who have sinned against us, um, Jesus said over and over again, that if you want your sins to be forgiven, you have to get, forgive other people's sins. Uh, even in the prayer that he taught us, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who trespass, who sin against us. And so... Our forgiveness hinges on the forgiveness that we show for others because God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And this is a core Christian belief that we affirm at our baptism and we, and we remind ourselves of every time we say this creed. Resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Yeah, that's a pretty big chunk of things to believe in. Um, as Alice in Wonderland, she says... I wake up and I try to believe six impossible things before breakfast. And maybe that's a good exercise for us, too, as we read the Creed. The Nicene Creed, uh, we're not going to spend as much time on this because we say it every Sunday, but it comes out of the Council of Nicaea. The, the Nicene Creed also contained a bunch of anathemas or statements that, that we were against that came out of it. But we don't say those. We focus on the positive in church. And we say the good stuff from the Nicene Creed, the positive stuff. We don't say the anathemas. But that Nicene Creed, or often called a Constantinople, Constantinople, nope, I'm not able to pronounce that city name today. But this uh, creed it also is attested by the ancient um, church, but comes maybe around 325 AD or following. It's a, lines from it are certainly uh, part of the Apostles' Creed. And you can see just how it's expanded to fight against Arianism. Arianism is a heresy that becomes immensely popular in the ancient Christian world. Uh, some of the folks that invade Rome are Arian Christians. Arian missionaries apparently were very, very courageous and went out to all parts of the um, non-Roman and, and world and told people about Jesus. But the Jesus they told them about uh, was not fully God. Uh, the, the Jesus that they talked about, Arianism, that God 
that Jesus was not fully God. So you see in the Nicene Creed, very God of very God. You see a huge emphasis on Jesus' divinity, um, not just his humanity, but on his divinity. And so, uh, and the idea that there is a trinity. Um, the trinity is, is the, the main teaching that comes out of the Nicene Creed. And, and uh, you can see how this would set a standard for the whole church world that everyone was to believe in the Trinity. And that's why we say the Nicene Creed is to reaffirm our belief in the Trinity. And yet, uh, even that wasn't enough. So the, the catechism here talks about the Athanasian Creed, which um, may or may not have been written by Athanasius, but it certainly summarizes many of his beliefs. Uh, he was, his nickname was the Black Dwarf. He was a small, dark-skinned man, bishop, teacher who was persecuted heavily for his belief in, in the Trinity. Um, you see that at the time there were power plays. The Aryan Christians would get the emperor on their side and then they would persecute the Trinitarian Christians and vice versa. So these creeds were, were ways of making peace with each other, saying this is the boundary of Christian belief, believing in Jesus Christ. All these beliefs come from Holy Scripture. In other words, they looked at the stories and teachings from the apostles on who Jesus was and said, he's fully God and fully man, fully God and fully human. And so we must believe that too and affirm that to be considered followers of Jesus. This certainly has caused a lot of division. You'll read popular accounts and maybe Dan Brown and some other places that this is, that this was like the ultimate, um, the ultimate death of, of real Christianity when they codified their beliefs into a creed. But from seeing what we know about the Apostles' Creed going very, very far back, this is a very early Christian practice to say what you believe about something. And this is not um, exhaustive. There's certainly things we believe that aren't in the creed that we hold to. But these are the essential Christian instruments of unity. We can have unity with other Christians based on these creeds because they are the creed of our baptism. Ultimately, baptism is that symbol that unites all Christians, that we are baptized. Jesus And Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's where the creed came from. If you're going to baptize somebody, you baptize them in the name of the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you don't just do it. It's not just a, a verbal formula that Jesus is saying there. But it's also you're teaching them about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, Jesus says. So this is an outshoot of Jesus' great commission to his church to teach people about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The best description of the Trinity that I heard that really helped me, and we'll address the Trinity in later episodes uh, in more detail, but that we are always struggling between the one and the many, that uh, we're always struggling to know like how who am I as an individual in this world relating to God, relating to others, relating to myself as an individual. As Kierkegaard said, we must relate to God as a solitary individual. And so, so I struggle with how much am I an individual and how much am I a part of this community? How much are my beliefs shaped by the community I grew up in, the community I live in today? And, and how, how much do I owe my community? What do I owe them? And what do I... Uh, what do I need to 
participate in and maybe not participate in in my community? And how am I one and how am I many? And being both at the same time can lead to a lot of confusion in life. If we focus only on the one, on the individual, ourselves, we become self-absorbed, selfish, selfish, myopic. I think we live in the age of the individual where, you know, I can uh, do whatever, I, as long as I can do whatever I want, I don't really care what anybody else does. Uh, this is often uh, expressed politically in libertarianism or other ideologies that say, as long as I'm okay, I, it's not my job to worry about what other people... And then you have, on the other side, communism, which is all about the many, uh, the, the one, the individual, is very much devalued and de-emphasized, even seen as a threat to the many. And so, in some forms of communism historically, you can see how this played out in people's lives. And, and yet, um, we'd say, well, that's not so great either. I don't want to really go that direction, where my whole personality and personhood is is sucked into this Borg-like uh, machine. And so we live in this tension of who am I and how am I part of this community? And the Trinity answers that question, the one and the many, that, that God is one. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then the rest of the Trinity shows up, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, uh, all co-equal in, in their power and in their in their way they relate to humanity and yet there are one but there are also many and understanding this i think helps me with the tension between the one and the many that i feel every single day and the trinity shows us how to do that so contemplating the trinity not so that we can explain it away or master it um, is one way of understanding the one and the many and so the creed is here to give you something to to be certain about in a very uncertain world that's why we say it. That's why we say it often. We don't just say it once. We say it a lot because we're not always sure that today we have the capability of believing. Believing is a gift from God. To be able to believe is something we pray for. And Lord, help, help my unbelief, the disciple says to Jesus. We, wanna, we want our unbelief to be helped. And so trusting in God, uh, this is one way we trust in God. Another way to say the word believe is to say the word trust. People that have suffered trauma and been through traumatizing experiences have a hard time trusting anybody. Uh, this was something I wrote about in the post-traumatic God, that when, when the, our world turns upside down in trauma, when we lose the, that illusion of safety that we carry with us all the time, maybe from an early age, when we lose that, we suddenly don't know who to trust or who we can trust. Trusting is, becomes very difficult, very hard. And so to give that gift of trust to another is a profound act of faith and belief. And God calls us to that through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can trust the crucified and risen Christ, someone who has been to hell and back for us, someone who has been through death, been through hell, and come out on the other side. We can trust that experience, whether we can trust all the things around that experience. It's hard to know all the time, but we can trust that experience and that person ultimately Believing in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is trusting a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting what he did for us is the ultimate way that we learn how to trust other people. Uh, so, tr so I hope that your, your truster 
uh, is strengthened today to um, to try to trust again if you've been hurt or you've experienced loss in these ways. So thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again on the Dear Padre podcast. Bye.